we're continuing in a series that we're calling Glow Up because we always have like back to school, people come back after the summer and it's like, oh, they have a, a significant outward transformation, but we are concerned about the inward and the inward transformation. So tonight we're talking about words. We're talking about words and specifically how your, our words have power. All of our words have power. Um, the average person, I looked this up on the internet, so it has to be true. The average person speaks, on average, 16,000 words in a day. Now, it did say that some people, and mostly men, so this, this is all conjecture, um, on average, 5,000 a day for men, 20,000 for women. That's a, that's a crazy stat in and of itself. But 16,000 words a day. And it did say that only about five to 800 of those words are meaningful, like you are talking to one other person, and those are like meaningful words going back and forth, which to me was like, man, I've got a low hit rate. Like all my words are just going out there and nobody cares what they're, where they're going. So good luck for tonight. Um, but 16,000 words, um, if you were to put that in paper form, like in a book, that's 60 pages. Every single day, 60 pages is what you create with just the words that you speak from out of your mind and your heart and your gut into the world. And if you did that over the course of a single week, somebody in here has got to be good at math, that's 420 pages, 420 pages. Now this is a book that's in my office, that is about 430 pages. Each week, you speak enough words to fill this book. The words that your roommate says, the words that your parents say, the words that your professors say, the words that you say to your friends, all of these combined would fill up one of these books. And I wanna ask before we get started, if you were to share the book that you write each week with your words with someone, what would it say? What would someone have read the book and say, this is what that book is about? This is what their life could be defined by. This is what really matters to them. This is the tone, this is the theme of their life, what would the story that you are writing with your words say? 420 pages every single week. I wanna read Proverbs 18:21 as we kick off tonight. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. There is power in our words. You can probably remember, and this is similar to what we talked about last week with thoughts, because sometimes words are kind of implanted in our heads and they can't really leave us, that maybe someone said something to you as a child, and maybe it was a flippant remark, maybe it was just kind of set off the cuff, that just kind of sticks with you. And you can't forget what that person said. You Maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a parent. Maybe it wasn't a flippant one-time remark. Maybe it was repetitive. Maybe you were always told one thing. Man, you are always this. You will never be this. And because it was repetitive, or because it was said in a moment, where things were tender, or things were in transition, or you were really vulnerable in that moment, you remember what those words said. 
Last week I told the story of me and my wife watching a documentary, and in, in the documentary, it's about American gladiators, these big, strong guys, and this guy said that he, he, his mother died, and a guy on a plane, as they're going to visit family, looked at him, and this, this kid is six or seven years old, and he's starting to cry, because he misses his mom, and this man came up to him on a plane and said, hey, men don't cry, men are strong. And he said, that defined my life for the next 30 years. Words matter. Words hold power. Maybe there was an instance in elementary school or middle school or high school where there was a group of friends that you really wanted to be with, but they saw that you wanted to be with them, and they took advantage of that, and they made fun of you instead of accepting you and bringing you into the group, and that hurt. And those words ring true, and they said it in front of other people, and it was inappropriate and unkind, and you remember that. Maybe you remember what rejection looks like. Maybe you were trying out for something and the person didn't just say, no, you don't make it. They said, why would you even try? You're not good at this. Words have power and words matter. Death and life are found in the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. You remember the negative things. You remember when someone else has only things to say about themselves, when it's selfish. You remember, you can see in someone's voice and in someone's talk and their speech, the bitterness, the gossip, the foul language. We see it all. And are our words of little value? If you say 16,000 words in a day, if you're filling up this book in the course of a week, it's like, what does it really matter what one chapter adds up to. Matthew 12, 36. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. They'll give account for every careless word that they speak. Um, I want to tell you a story of a person, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to say their name wrong. Um, have any of you ever heard of Ignaz Semmelweis? Fun name. Um, he was an Eastern European doctor in the mid-1800s, 1840, 1850, 1860, and he worked in a maternity ward. And he worked in, in two separate maternity wards at the same time. One was doctors, one was midwives, and they were seeing death rates in one and not the other. They were seeing death rates five times higher in the one with doctors than they were the ones with midwives. And they were, he was like trying to figure out, as one of the lead doctors, like why is this happening here? And they thought maybe it was method of, of you know, the, the actual birth. Maybe that has to do with it, and that didn't make a difference. And at the time, they were, they were starting to learn more about science. I mean, this is the mid-1800s. So they're learning more about science. They're learning more about the body. And one of the things that they're doing is they're starting to learn that after someone dies, you can do an autopsy, cut them apart, figure out some of the things of why they might have died, and they, they were, so anytime a woman would die after giving birth, he would do an autopsy and try to figure out what was going on. And they had this, this name for this fever, but they also had this, this understanding for why these deaths happened, and the, the, the name was the will of providence, and basically it was saying it's the providence of God. It's just we don't understand why it happened. So we're just saying it's an act of God that this person died. And what he was learning is that at the medical hospital, these autopsies were happening. At the hospital with the midwives, 
these autopsies were not happening. And one of the things that he was trying to, to kind of isolate the issue is he said, what if it has to do with the smell of the instruments in our hands going from, and listen to this, this is wild, going from autopsy to maternity ward. They were using the same tools and the same hands during autopsies as they were in maternity wards. So he said, what if it has to do with the smell from the dead bodies? So let's do this. Let's start washing our hands and using chlorine to clean up the smell, not knowing that chlorine would kill the germs that were on the tools and their hands, thinking he was just doing it for the smell, and they saw mortality rates go where they should, and women not dying at birth. Why? Because they weren't having the infection rates. He really thinks he figured it out whenever he had a friend who was doing an autopsy with him, a fellow doctor, and that friend cut himself with a scalpel. And the wound made his blood look the same as it did in the women who were dying. It was an infection. They didn't have the technology to understand what was going on invisibly and hidden, but it was causing death. Our words are something that are invisible. Our words are something, sticks and stones, right? You can say you've got a tough exterior. You can say that you don't really get bothered by things. And you really might, and that, that, that's okay. I'm not trying to say that you should be, but our words have power of life and death. Whether we see them or not, whether we see the end result of that pain or not, there's life and death attached to our words. It might be silent. It might be hidden. It might be immediate, and it might be delayed. But our words have power for life and for death. And we'll give an account for every one. I want to read Luke 6.45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. But listen to this. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Last week we talked about how we go from thoughts to actions to patterns to character to the person. This is that action. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks speaks. What are words? Words are a window. This is not just randomly reflecting the things that are put into us, the things that garbage in, garbage out. This is what is in our soul. This is what's in our mind. This is what affects us the most. This is who we really, really are. And sometimes I look at that and I'm like, man, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. And James echoes the same thing. James says this, through, uh, chapter three, verse two through six. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. And he's using hyperbole here saying, listen, if you can figure out your speech, your, your, your talk, the way that you use your words, you're basically perfect. You've basically mastered it. Why? Because it's hard. You are going to fail in the way that you speak. You're going to say something off the cuff. You're gonna say something poorly. You're gonna make a mistake with your words. It happens. I've done it a 100 times today. He's also able to bridle his whole body. 
But, and he uses three different analogies here, and two of them are kind of combined around the same idea. But the first one is this. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships, too. Though though they are also large, they are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the wind and the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. This, the, the bit in the mouth of a horse, the rudder of a ship, our words direct our lives. You can see how someone who's good with their words can find ways to open doors. And, and when you don't use the correct words, you will have closed doors in front of you. You see people that kill relationships, not because they have ill intent. Sometimes that's it. Sometimes it's just because they said the wrong thing at a vulnerable time. We see it all the time. I mean, you think about any relationship that you were in in high school, the guy probably said something dumb. It's just a reality. Why? Because that's what was in the heart. But it's such a small thing. Think about that analogy. It's such a small thing, but it defines the whole thing. Think about the most famous ships that we know of in America. That would be, one would be the Titanic, and the second one would be the Mayflower. Now, they are famous for their size, for what they, what they accomplished, but they're mostly famous for where they took their passengers. One reaching a new land, one reaching an iceberg. Our speech, our words, will direct the course of our lives. They're important. Think about this. We, we judge people's character by their words and their actions matching up. We say that you have good character if you say, hey, I'm, I, I can't make it there, and then you don't make it there. You have good character whenever you say, hey, I'll be there at six, and you're there at six. You have good character when you say, I'll turn that in on time, and you turn it in on time. Our words matter. Our words will direct our lives. They matter. The second analogy, or the, the, really the third analogy he uses is a spark or a fire. And this is in the next verse. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our lives, and set on fire by hell. Our words have power. And when you think about fire, fire can be used for such good things. Fire can be such a helpful thing. It can also be a destructive thing. And you know that one small word said at the wrong time or not said at all in the wrong situation can be one of the most harmful and destructive things. And you've seen it. The statistics are probably that half of the people in this room, if not more, are children of divorce. You've seen how a set of parents can be divisive with their words. And they know where the the other person is vulnerable. They know where the other person is insecure. So a small spark will light a big fire. You've seen it with a group of friends. Somebody's starting something new, they're excited about it, and you know that you can do a lot of damage if you go around to to somebody else and go, and it's it's gonna be funny, that's the thing. It's gonna be really funny if you go around and say, hey, they're they're gonna crash and burn doing this new thing. 
a small spark can start a big fire. Our words hold power. We understand the negativity. We understand how, man, the, the, the balances are so high. But the Bible talks about how there's good things that can be involved. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There are good things that can happen with our words. There are probably things that you look at and you're grateful that someone said something to you. You're grateful that there's things that have helped you. You're grateful that there, there have been someone who loved you enough to tell you that something that you're doing is harmful to yourself. So I want to list a couple of the things that it talked about there. It says to encourage one another. Man, one of the ways that you can be loved by people is just being an encouragement. I'm so looking forward to my friend Rob coming in town this week. Why? Because he's an encourager. He's just an encourager. He'll find something positive and go, man, I love it. It's so good. He's an optimist. So you know what? I love to be around him. Why? Because I love to be encouraged. And you probably do too. And sometimes our, our youth pastor was telling us this this morning in, in our staff meeting. I thought this was so good. We, we think that pessimism is realism, and we get those two things confused. So we think we're doing a favor to the people around us by going, uh, you don't see all sides of it, and I do. So I'm going to let you know all the, the issues with your plan, with your idea, with the person that you're going to date, with all these things. So I'm just going to tell you, because it's, it's the right thing to do to tell you. Goodness, can we just encourage each other? Can we just be a source of encouragement? Can we be a source of hope? Can we be a source of love to each other and encourage each other? And the next one, it says, it says in that Colossians 3.16 verse, to admonish one another. What is that? That's telling someone, man, you've got something in your teeth. You've got something on your face. And not just in a physical sense, but saying, can I tell you, I see you walking down a path that's not good. And it's difficult. And it's not right. And I love you too much to watch you walk into that much pain. And help them not walk in that direction. To express gratitude. We get to express gratitude for each other. You know what I was challenged with a couple years ago? Not just feeling the feeling of gratitude and going, man, I'm thankful for that person. But expressing it with my words. And this is different than encouragement. This is saying, I am grateful for you. You are a blessing to our friend group. You are a help to us. I'm grateful that you are in my family. You bring excitement. You bring a good attitude. You bring wisdom. You bring, that's different than encouragement. Encouragement's saying, hey, keep, keep going. Reminding them of where God's moved in the past. And gratitude says, man, I'm just, I love you and I'm grateful for you. We get to do that for each other. And the, the, the last one I think there's a, there's a list that we could make, but the things that I wrote down, what are the things that we can do with our words that help? We can apologize. One of the things that ruins relationships is when one person has a minor issue with another person and you start to kind of feel the tides turn of like, and that person's kind of turning their back towards me. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of humility 
to walk up to a group of people you may have made a mistake in front of and not justified it and said, well, they didn't do half of the work that I did today, so I'm just, no. Well, they were, they were frustrated. They were annoying to me. They used their words in an unkind way, so my action, my reaction to them was justified. No, walking into a room and saying, hey, guys, I shouldn't have said what I said. I shouldn't have responded that way. I apologize. I can think of a time, Logan and I have both used this in a message before. We're at a meeting with some of the people that are on staff with us, and we start talking about something, and we're talking about somebody's family member, we're laughing, and then we each got a phone call from the person who said something about their family member, and they said, hey, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have spoken that way about that person. Will you forgive me? And I was like, yes, I guess I have to. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to forgive you, but yes, I forgive you. You know what that does? All these things, they raise the standard for how we will use our words in a group. And we know that we're not gonna gossip. We know that we're gonna be kind. I remember who I was talking to. I was talking to Andrew Albritton, and it was right over there. And he, he was talking about somebody, something, and he started a conversation. He started something else, because we were laughing, we were having a good time. And he stopped and he looked at his wife and he goes, I need to change the subject. And I was like, what just happened? And he goes, there's a verse that says, speak evil of no man. So I'm trying to, whenever I do that, I look at Steph, I tell her I need to change the subject and we move on. And I was like, so you read it in the Bible, you talked to somebody about it and then you just did it? I was like, that's crazy. But I was like, you know what it did? It raised the standard for my conversations with him. You have the capacity to raise the standard of what happens in your friend group. Hey, did you hear that? Hey, I'm not going to talk about people when they're not in the room. Okay. You, you can. I, I, if I need to leave, that's fine. Hey, did you hear about what so-and-so? Not me. When you make a mistake, apologize for it. When you see someone who did something good, they stepped out in obedience or they were kind to another person, which is sometimes the hardest thing to do, in going, man, hey, you crushed that. I just wanted to point out, he did a great job in that scenario. Our words can bring life to people. Our words can bring death. So how do we start to fill this book with good things, and we'll talk about ultimately how we do that, but I have a filter I want you to use. If you take notes, you can write these things down. Pray for this filter. When you're using your words, I pray that these are the things that would come to mind of what to say and what not to say. So first, is it true? Is the thing that I have to say true? We should not tell lies. We should not bend the truth. We should not tell half-truths. We should not tell the part of the story that makes us look good and someone else look bad because it's not the full truth. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having putting away, putting, put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Is it true? Is it something that you know could live by itself if you left it, 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 it's true. I know that to be true. Is it needed? 
Is it a help? Is it, is it a needed thing to hear? Proverbs 23, 9 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise good sense of your words. You know what that means? There might be something that's true. Everything that's said needs to be true. Not everything that's true needs to be said. There might be someone that you don't have the relationship with and that would not listen to what you have to say. Because why? Words said to a fool that are wise are viewed as not wise. You, you come up to someone who's getting ready to do something foolish and you say, hey, that's not a good choice. They don't care. Now, that should be a help for our barometer. Is it needed? Is that going to help that person? In Matthew 5 and 18, Jesus is teaching in two different, thing, in two different settings, but he, he uses, if you see a brother about to sin or if you're in sin, go to the brother. Apologize. Use your words. And in both of those settings, what it says is if there's distance, if there's tension, if there's sin between you and someone else, you know what you get to do? You get to help resolve the tension but what it says afterwards is, if they listen, you've gained a brother. Now, does that make those conversations easy? Absolutely not. But it gains you a brother. It gains you someone who you can look at and say, I was in sin. I didn't realize it at the time. It wasn't fun to listen to. But now I get to go back and go, I know that he loves me enough to call me out on stuff. Not telling someone who's getting ready to walk into failure and demise and pain and difficulty, letting them do it without saying anything to them is not loving them. Now, sometimes that person will not listen, but is it needed? Is it true? Is it needed? Is it helpful? Is it good? As Christians, we're called to be sanctified. We're called to grow closer to God every single day. Is this an area that you see someone else needing Help. Listen to Ephesians 4.29. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Is it going to help them in their walk with God? Is it going to help sanctify them? Is it true? Is it needed? Is it helpful? And fourth, is it God-honoring? Now, there can be things that are true, there might be things that are needed, there might be things that are helpful, but you don't need my opinion. What you need is God's word. Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Because we're Christians, and this is what we've gotten wrong for a long time, because you think you hold the moral correctness doesn't mean that you get to be a jerk. Speaking the truth in love, it's this balance. It's seeing where it's needed. It's seeing how you can be a help. It's seeing where this is God honoring. As we grow up into him who is Christ, we are learning together. Hey, I only tell you this because I love you. But this is the truth of God's word, and this is where you're living, and they don't match up. And I love you too much to let you walk into pain and difficulty because of it. So how do we have this glow up? How do we do this? I think, first of all, you have to acknowledge you're part of the problem. Um, 
that doctor, Ignaz Semmelweis, um, 1840s, 50s, and 60s, um, they never learned during his lifetime about germs and bacteria. They didn't know why it worked. He tried, he spent his life trying to convince people this is the right way to do things. And they named a principle after him. They named it, it's called the Ignaz Semmelweis reflex. It's the reflex to not accept new information because it conflicts with what you already know. But beyond that, not just cognitive dissonance, beyond that, you have to admit that you were part of the problem in that conflict. As he's telling doctors, you gotta wash your hands, you gotta wash your hands, they had to admit, I am holding on to something that is harming my patients. And they were saying, no, my, my hands are bringing good. And he couldn't convince them that that was what they needed. And they named this principle after him because people were slow to say, I am part of the problem. The first thing you have to do is admit, I'm part of the problem. If my words are a window to my soul, my words should be a reminder that I'm a broken person and I need help. There's things that we need help with. I was listening to a podcast today and it was talking about how we sin more and we need to halt. Stop when you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. What are the words that you use when you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired? Not just, oh, I got a little hangry. Sorry, that wasn't me. I needed a Snickers. No, 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 that's not it. What are the words that you use when you're stretched thin? You get frustrated with people. Is it easy to diminish someone else around you? Is it easy to nitpick on the insecurities of a friend? Is it easy to be angry? Is it easy to have words that do not reflect the character of God? Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he seems intelligent. I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the issue. But God doesn't just leave us there and say, hey, just keep your mouth closed and hope everything gets better. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to challenge you to do, to do two things this week. To speak God's word to yourself. To speak God's word to yourself. If God's word has power, and our words have power, find God's word and say, God, what you say about me is true. And I choose to listen. I choose to say that to myself. I choose to believe. I choose to have hope. I choose to listen. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is God speaking. You may not understand why it works. 
You may not be the third person in your friend group to raise the standard of what's acceptable when it comes to your speech, but you can do it. You can be the person that says, I'm gonna believe because God's word doesn't return void. God's word accomplishes the, the purpose for which it was started. My favorite verse, 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that. Like that's what he says about you. And then he says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Tell the goodness of God. You have no idea what we're missing by not just telling the goodness of God. It doesn't say you have to have all the answers. It doesn't say that you have to have the perfect apologetic. It doesn't say that you have to have the bridge memorized perfectly. It doesn't say all those things. What it says is you gotta tell the goodness of God. It doesn't say that you have to have everything memorized. Can I just tell you how God's been good? God's provided in in ways that I didn't know he he was going to, to. In ways that I didn't see the funds, in ways, see God's provided, he's awesome. Man, God has helped me grow in this area. I never thought that I would be doing this, and God has helped me. That's who my God is. First Corinthians, Paul talks about how some water, some plant, God does the growing, but what we're called to do is be faithful and obedient. We need to be faithful and obedient. Tell the goodness of God. Here's your homework. Tell the goodness of God to yourself. Tell the goodness of God to someone this week. Tell the goodness of God. God's word has power, even when you don't see it, even when you don't understand it. I wanna read you the rest of James that we read earlier about the tongue and how big of an issue it can be. James 3, 7 through 12 says this, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. If our words are a window into our soul, you and I don't have the power to just go and change it on our own. We need help. We need that source of life and that source of water and our source of what is good to come in and completely change us. God's word has power. When you read through the Bible, the first thing that you read is in the beginning, God created heaven and earth and he spoke and light happened and he separated the darkness from the light. But words also have power just a couple of chapters later in Genesis three, the enemy shows up by a serpent and it finds Eve and he says, did God really say not to do this? And his words twisted and we believed and it it, it fractured the relationship of walking and talking with God. And what you read over the next thousand pages that you read in the Bible is God wanting to have a relationship with us and us looking at other things and going, this might be better. God going, okay, you you can do it for a short time. 
and then us running back to God and him, us saying, we need help, and him sending a savior, him sending warning signs saying, you can't do this on your own, it's gonna lead to death, and him sending a savior, and it's finished. What you see in John 1, in John 1, John wrote his gospel differently than the other authors. He didn't start with the birth of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's not just saying the Bible. He's saying Jesus was there. Jesus is God, and Jesus came to us. He has the full power of God. And Jesus stepped into our world. And he only spoke truth. He was only kind. He never had a reaction that was less than suboptimal. It was perfect. He was perfect. He never sinned. Why? Because God requires perfection. And we didn't match up to that with our words, with our actions, with our minds, with our intentions. So Jesus came and was what we couldn't be. And on the cross, he's standing there being brutally murdered. And what does he say? He says with his words, you need to just clean up your actions. You need to just stop gossiping. You need to be more kind. No, 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 no. He didn't say that we needed to do one more thing. He said, it is finished. Everything that we could and should do to have a relationship with God was satisfied in the person of Jesus. There's not right words that you can say. What he needs is full surrender because he's done everything. It can start with a word, God, I surrender to you, but it's a lifetime of surrender to God. 